Good morning. Just want to say thanks this last week. Um, gosh, my family and, and we got to go with the Moors and we were up in the Beartooths backpacking. It was so beautiful. Got to hang out at Elizabeth's parents' house and it was amazing. Um, and then we got to float the Yellowstone through Paradise Valley uh, Friday. It was really refreshing and awesome. So good to just get in the middle of God's creation sometimes, you know? It's a different set of mountains. Um, it, it was amazing. It was just magnificent. And we were, feel really f- refreshed, and so we're super thankful for that. Um, before we get started here this morning, we are going to, uh, I, I want to do something. Um, uh, we want to pray in, we've, we've got Dan Keller and, and Phil Plett that are going to begin to serve within the church as deacons. And so um, it's really just a great thing that, that our church is to that spot and that we are going to uh, put some deacons in office. Um, Dan isn't able to be here this morning, so we're going to officially pray over him later, but he will be one that we will do that as well. But for this morning, we're going to pray over Phil, okay? So let's bring Phil up, and then you guys are on board, board members, former elders of the church, guys who have served on the board. Why don't you come up? I want to, we want to pray over him, and, and we want to just kind of uh, just dedicate him into this position, this office of the church, and bless the ministry um, that he's going to serve in as we move forward in that. All right. Well, Phil, here he is right here, Phil. Let's get you front and center right here so everybody can see him. All right. So, so if you... Uh, <laughs> At least he's on his best side. <laughs> if you need anything, call Phil. <laughs> no, Phil's going to bless us. He's going to help us to, to just do some things better within the church. So let's pray over him in this, this uh, role as deacon. Lord, we just thank you. I thank you for Phil and for his heart to, um, to serve in this way. Lord, I just thank you that he already does it, that, that he's always just always welcoming and, and looking uh, outward at, at the church and the things of the church, the function of the church, the people. Um, and, and, and Lord, you just he's a pastor and he has a pastor's heart. And so, Lord, we're just asking that you'd bless him and, and this ministry of of deacon within our church, Lord, that you would bless him, that he would be a blessing back to the church, that he would find uh, just great fulfillment in it, Lord, and, and that, he would, um, that he would just richly bless the body of the Rock Church. So we thank you for him. We thank you uh, for uh, just all the good things that you give us, Lord, all the giftings, and, and Lord, just your order for the church, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Phil. All right. And we'll pray over Dan later. Um, as you know, uh, probably or maybe know, Pam was in, uh, got a hip replaced. And um, so be keeping her in prayer. I'm sure that uh, Dan is just needing to, to be home today to help to meet uh, her needs. So this morning we're continuing on. If you're, if you're new here this morning, if you haven't come either online or, or, or you're new with us, uh, personally this morning, we want to extend just a really, uh, just a big welcome to you. We're thankful that you're here this morning, that you've chose to come and worship with us this morning. If you're looking for a church home, we, we, we certainly hope this might be a fit for you. Um, if it happened to not be a fit for you, we just encourage you to, to look around. There's, there's many Bible-believing, Jesus-loving fellowships within Sheridan. We're blessed that way. But to find a church home, to plug into that church home, and to begin to serve there. So again, if that might be here, we would be blessed in that. We have been going through the book of Mark since January, and we are in chapter 10. 
We're starting chapter 10 this morning, so if you want to turn your Bible on, open your Bible, grab a Bible from the chair in front of you, we will get started this morning. Last week we talked about Jesus kind of giving this some, some, some pretty harsh, some pretty hard teaching about, about sin and, and, and about how we are to react as believers to sin, that, that he kind of gave us this, this hyperbole, this, this speech that gives a dr- drastic examples of how to deal with sin in our lives, and it was basically cut it off, right? If, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot would cause you to sin, cut it off. If your eye would cause you to sin, pluck it out. And, and, and again, we talked about how what he's doing is telling us to make sure that we're taking drastic measures to get sin out of our lives because of the destructive nature of sin, both in our lives individually and also, too, in society, in our families, in, 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 the, in the circles that we run in, that, that sin never happens in a vacuum and that it's always a bigger deal than what we tend to give it and that, and that we are to be a people who flee from sin because we recognize the, the harsh reality of, of how, uh, how destructive sin is in our lives. And so we talked about that last week, and now we're going to look at and we're going to talk about, uh, Jesus is going to give a teaching here this morning on, uh, about divorce. And, and, and certainly this is something that, that we have to talk about in our culture. And as we, as we do this, it's going to get just a lot deeper than that because of the definition that Jesus gets. And so let's get started here. And it says that he left there and he went to the region of Judea. And so Jesus is, is making the rounds all around this entire area. He's, he, it's kind of like his, uh, his circle within Israel is, is a big loop that he's taking and he's teaching, he's healing, he's doing miracles, all of this. He's uh, the whole time, and, he, and he's making known to the people around him just who he is, that he is God, and that he is here, that he has the power of God, and, and that he is moving in their midst. And so now he's in Judea, he's beyond the Jordan, and the crowds uh, gather to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And so wherever Jesus goes, he's, 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 there, there are throngs of people, there are crowds that are following him, and he's, he's continuously meeting with these people. He's taking time to sit down and to begin to teach them and to help them to kind of understand, like, what is this spiritually? What does life look like? What is life about? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Who are we? What is our identity? Where did we come from? Where are we going? And why are we here? These are things that Jesus is, is dealing with. And he's talking to the people about. So Jesus is here teaching them. And again, there's a crowd of Pharisees that come. And the Pharisees are, are there not really to hear or to learn, but to continually just test. They're challenging the things that Jesus is saying. They're really just waiting for him. They're trying to get him to trip up on some matter, most likely a matter of the law, because that's what they're all about is, is the legal side of these things about the law and and following the law. And remember, the problem with the Pharisees wasn't really the idea of them following the law. The the problem with the Pharisees was that they had begun to believe that how they followed their law and and their ability to fulfill their religious tenets justified them and made them righteous before God and before other people. And, and, and so they were, they were a people who were looking down on others because that's what religion always does to us when we, when we live in a legalistic system where it's based on works and it's based on, on, on our ability to fulfill those works, we're always going to create a hierarchy of who's better than who others, right? 
and that somehow we're going to see ourselves as better than others. And so the Pharisees, it says, they came up, and in order to test him, they asked Jesus this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And I'm going to look here for a second to see if I can find out. There it is right there. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So what is this? They're saying, look, is it lawful? Is it permissible? Is there a loophole somehow? Um, Is there justification for this kind of a thing? Can a man divorce his wife? Can he send her away? And and so Jesus, whenever he begins to answer this question, he refers back to Moses and to the law. And he says, well, what does the law say? What does the law say about this? Now, the law is going to tell us this. In Deuteronomy 24.1, this is what what Moses lays out. He says this. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens if, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her away from his house. So Jesus has said, look, what did Moses say? And Moses gave you this decree. Why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. Okay? So there were two schools of thought, basically, at this time that are really going around. There's, There's a rabbi named Shammai, and there's a rabbi named Hallel. Now, with Shammai, he says this. When he interprets this verse... He takes the idea where it says indecency, and it's going to translate more like something like sexual immorality. So in other words, what he's going to say is that there is a clause or there is a way that if a man marries his wife and he finds out that she actually was not pure, she wasn't a virgin before their marriage, that there was immorality in there before that, and that, that, that comes to light, that then he could write her a certificate of divorce. So when, when Shammai... Um, looks at this scripture, he, he begins to interpret it in, in a very narrow frame. Now, when Hallel looks at the same scripture, he interprets it in a very liberal way. He, he basically says this, and when he looks at the indecency in her, he begins to say things like this, like if she doesn't dress in a way that's pleasing to her husband, then he could divorce her. If, as a matter of fact, that if, if her voice could be heard at the house next door, that would mean that she was quarrelsome, and that he could divorce her for that. If he wasn't pleased by the food that she made, he could divorce her for that. Or if he just found somebody he liked better, he could divorce her for that as well. So guess what? Guess whose teaching was more popular? The latter, right? Hallel's, right? His teaching was much more popular and so the, the, the Pharisees now are coming, they're saying, look, there's this, there's this problem between, between views with these big rabbis, the, 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 these major rabbis that are teaching throughout the Jewish community. Now, what do you say about this, Jesus, right? So what we see is, that, again, Jesus, as he, as he sent them to, to, to Moses, we see that this was never commanded. This was not one of the commandments. Divorce was not a commandment. Divorce was um, permitted, but it was permitted due to the hardness of their hearts. Today, we still have hardness of our hearts. We, we were in a broken spot, and, 
in, in our lives and in, in our marriages and, and, and certainly in the world around us today, we see the reality of this as it's playing out, that there are really hard hearts. This is something that we have to get back a hold of as a Christian community and as the church. And I'm going to tell you that as the church, you're going to see this church have a huge commitment to this idea of marriage, family, and, and, and helping to begin to gird up marriages, not just the marriages within here, but out in the community too, because what we're seeing is that the world doesn't understand and does not know or understand what marriage really is. We have no clue. Even within the church, as I do premarital counseling, what I find is that generally the people coming in there have no clue as to what the reality of marriage really is. It's, hint number one, it's not to make you happy. It's not. Marriage isn't to make us happy. Marriage is to grow us as human beings together. To, to create something in us, to challenge us. And marriage has this unique ability to challenge us in ways that almost nothing else does because you are going to become intimately related and known by somebody like you've never been known in your life. Your parents won't even necessarily know you to the degree that your spouse will know you. And that, guess what, is going to start to cause things to spill out that are already in there, right? Right? It, it just is. So marriage is this thing, it's this, it's this thing that God has given us, it's this beautiful thing, but we don't understand it, and we're struggling really hard with this as, as a culture, and it's crushing our culture. I promise you that 85% of the problems that are going on out there are because of the brokenness of our homes. And if we begin to fix that and we begin to address that and move into that, we're, we would see a very different world today. <laughs> So, just because something is allowed or permitted does not mean that it is good. Paul tells us that all things are permissible to us, but not all things are profitable to us, right? Is there grace? Yes, and I want to start by telling this, there is grace in this area. And I want to, I want to talk about, as we talk about this whole, we're going to look at this very holistically and in a big way, but I want to remind us there's always grace. And there is always goodness, but there is always God's plan that we really have to surrender to as God's people. So, we still look to justify. We still have hard hearts. You see, the problem wasn't in their misunderstanding of the law. Their problem was in the misunderstanding of what marriage is. They were just looking for loopholes out of it, but what does Jesus do? He takes them into this thing about what it really is, and he starts with this statement, but from the beginning of creation. But from the beginning, from the get-go, the original intention, this is how it was always meant to be. And thus, because it's how it has always been or always been meant to be, it is how it will always be. It is unchanging. This is a very broad spectrum statement that Jesus is making right now. And he starts by saying this, but from the beginning of creation which tells us that there is a creator. And if there is a creator, and there is one who has, who has lined this all out, one who has, who has given these institutions, then he is the one who is allowed to write the rule book for how it goes. And that's just the truth. It's just the way that it goes, that God is allowed to tell us what marriage looks like and what it doesn't look like. And it's up to us. We'll either listen to that or we'll reject 
what God has to say. But he starts with this, but from the beginning of creation, it's always been this way. It's never been a different way. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Boom. That's it. So from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You are made on purpose by a purposeful God, that he knows everything about you and he made you exactly who you're supposed to be. See, today in our world, in the world that we live in, this very thing, and we're going to see that all of these institutions that we're talking about this morning are under attack. Every statement in this that Jesus is making, and this one right now, the idea of gender is under attack today in the world that we live in. We live in a world that postmodernism took over a long time ago, the idea that there is no truth, that truth is relative, that truth is subjective, that it's not objective. See, and what Jesus is doing is he's, he's ratcheting truth down on this thing, and he's saying it is not subjective, it is objective, and it begins with the creator and his creation. It begins in the beginning, and it has always been this way, and in the beginning, God made them to be male and female. Our world says today that that's fluid, that that can just be whatever, that according to someone's feelings, they can be someone else. A, a man could become a woman or a woman become a man. But I'm going to say that, that that's, a, that's a deception of the enemy. And a, and a man can never become a woman. Now, now let, me, let me again back up and let me just remind us, Christians, that we are supposed to be a people of grace. And we are to always understand the reality of the complexity of the human being. Human beings are incredibly complicated. Our sexuality, our understanding of the world, the way that we see things, our experiences, and the brokenness of this world have left all of this in a very precarious place. But we are to be reminded that God makes new creations, that everything is new in him. That he has the capacity and the ability, and if he says this is the way that it was intended to be, then he is also the God who can equip us and help us in our struggles. So we're never to come against or attack people who are struggling in these issues or these places. But we remember that gender is part of someone's identity. It's part of the core of who they are. It's part of the core of who God made them to be. And people who struggle in this area, and there are people who are struggling in this area. And they have about a 40% suicide rate. And that should set us back. We should, we should recognize that that's, that's, that doesn't now put a target on their back for us to attack them. It, it, it should move us to say, we need to get the truth to people. Because what's the answer? The answer is Jesus. The answer is a new life. The answer is a new creation. The answer is a person understanding their identity as God created it to be, not as they might feel or that their, their struggles or maybe something in their life has happened in their life that left them incredibly confused at a very difficult and formative time in their life. And this stuff happens frequently, and they're left kind of in a tailspin of even who they are. 
But this core idea of identity, identity is the deepest level of change. And see, what does the enemy want to do? The enemy wants to come in and contort the image of God that is within us and who God has made us to be. And so we see in our world today that the further that we move to God, the more that this is being twisted and it's being just, just kind of challenged and people are struggling in a really deep way. As a matter of fact, what you see in the stats is that this is all going up. It's increasing in our world. It's because the world doesn't know who they are, doesn't know who we've created them to be. We've even created a world in which, you know, doing some of these things or being on this is a little bit risque. It's a little bit out there. It's a little bit cutting edge. It's a little bit exciting. But the the Bible tells us and reminds us here that God is the creator of us and God has made them to be male and female. And when I say that that 40% suicide rate, a lot of people in the world will say this. They'll say, well, it's because they're not accepted. And if we would just accept them or we could normalize things or just make everything okay, then that would be okay. But there are studies, and there are studies in the Netherlands that show that that's not the case. And the Netherlands is a much more accepting place than here in these areas, but it doesn't change it. And so now we're living in in a world and we're actually being challenged in the world with taking kindergartners, kids that are five years old, six years old, seven years old. That might say for whatever reason that they're struggling and that we're going to begin to, to give them hormones, puberty blockers to stop puberty. And, and, and the world is acting like you can just turn this on and off like a switch and that you could just make this change and you can just do this and then surgically you can mutilate somebody and change the very core and the fiber of who they are. And I'm going to hold that you cannot do that. You cannot do that. It will never happen. And this person will live with the difficulty and the pain and the hardship of trying to be something that they can never be. Because if you're a man, you can never be a woman. And if you're a woman, you can never be a man. I don't care how many hormones you take or how much surgery you undergo. You'll be left with the conflict that's left inside of who you're trying to be that you can't because God has made you to be someone else. And here's what really troubles me about this. And they'll label me as a hater and all of that kind of stuff to even stand up here and say that kind of thing. But we're going to leave people now in this place where you can't say that. Can't say that. That's mean. That's hateful. That's cruel. That's bigoted. that's, That's hate speech. That is not. I believe that that's loving. And I I believe that it's loving as God's people to begin to stand up and push back against this stuff a little bit and say, no, 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 wait a minute. We have an answer, and we believe that God has... But you see, when you take this off of the table and you say, nope, you can't say that, you can't change that, nobody can change that, and you believe that people... Trust me, if I can't believe people can change, I, I can't stand up here. I can't do it. Because we all need to change. And Jesus is the one who has come in and he's interrupted every part of our culture and who we are and my being and my identity and all of these things, and he's changed it. And he's radically changed it. He's radically changed how I view myself and the world and sexuality and all of these kinds of things. And it's all got to be done according to his word. But God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now we have the picture of marriage and family. Both of these things are also under attack, right? Now, notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not attacking everybody. 
People will tell you this. They'll say, well, Jesus never made a statement about homosexuality or same-sex marriage. Yes, he did, right here. This is his statement about it. No, he did not come and attack everybody and attack every different form of whatever that could look like. What he did was he said, this is how it's always been and this is how it will always be. This is God's intention. This is the original design by the designer. And that a man will have a, take a wife and he will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They will create another family unit. What's he saying here? <clears throat> He's saying that... that, that it's a man and a woman, and they will be brought together. It's going to say that here in just a second, that the, that the, 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 uh, the two shall become one flesh. What's that saying? That's saying that men and women are incomplete apart from one another. Don't hear, if you're single, me saying that you're... You, that I'm just saying that that is God's intention. This is God's picture, is that men are incomplete without women, and women are incomplete without men, that the idea is... Diversity brought into unity. What is this a picture of? It's a picture of God and who he is. It's a picture of the Trinity. It's a picture of the idea that, that God brings diversity into unity. It's part of his very character and his nature. When God created marriage and all of this stuff, he didn't randomly just look down at Adam and even say, I don't know what to do with them. I think I'll just have them get married. No, God went... This is part of who he creates as he is. He gives these institutions as an expression of who he is. And then those, those institutions are meant to be a visible something that the world to look at in this world, on this earth, and then give glory to God and say, wow, look at him. Look at, I see him at work in the family, in the society, in the world around me. I see God. How is it that you do this? Or how do you have a good marriage? Well, it's because we, we understand it. So, so God says that then they, you leave your father and your mother and you break off and you make your own little trinity, husband, wife, children. And, and then that becomes the structure that society is ordered around. This becomes the fabric that holds everything together in the world that we live in. And as we see the family go in the world, so we see the situation of the world go. And we see it breaking down right now. We see it falling. We see it struggling. And as we see it struggling, we see more violence in our world. We see more mass shootings, all of these kinds of things. And while violent things have always happened and will until Jesus brings peace, things like that are escalating. And they're not escalating on accident. They're escalating because the family is breaking down. This is about the sovereignty of God. It's about marriage, it's about family, and it's about divorce. These things aren't subjective. They can't just be changed. We can't take hope and healing off of the table when we start offering answers to people. Hold fast to his wife. What does that mean? That means through the good and through the bad. That means you understand that, that this isn't going to be an easy road. You see, one of the hard things about marriage sometimes is that we stand up there and, and in a place where everything is going great and people are madly in love with one another and they can't ever imagine a time where they would struggle or, or, or have hard times or anything like that. They make their vows right then. But part of the vows that you make in a marriage ceremony are not to your, the other person, they're to God. 
And those vows look like this, through richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. You see, people begin to make vows at that marriage, not for what's happening today, but for the future, recognizing the reality that one day it might get tough. But you know what? Almost every couple, a huge percentage of couples that get into those tough places, but they grind it out, they find themselves happier and more connected on the other side of their really hard times than they would have been without them. And so what does God call us to? What is part of the Bible is about? It's about perseverance. It's about long-suffering. Why? Because this is hard. This stuff is hard. It's not easy, but it's important. But you see, we live in a culture that's got, we, we have a disposable culture. We don't fix old things, we buy new things. We throw away old things and we get the new one. And this is breaking us. Hold fast to recognize the reality that a husband and a wife are in a covenant relationship, not a contract. And the difference between a covenant and a contract is this. In a contract, if the other person fulfills their end of it, then you're obligated to fill your end of it, right? But in a covenant, it's different. A covenant says that you're required to fulfill your end of the thing, even if the other person isn't. That you're faithful to your end of what's going on. That your promise is, is to be faithful in what you've been called to. The two shall become one flesh. This is part of this picture, and I think there's an amazing picture. Science gives us an amazing picture now that we understand. It says that in this process of a man going and taking his wife and making the new family, that something comes out of that, and it's children. And children are a big, important reason why marriage is incredibly important. But if you think about that, it says that two become one flesh. And I, th I think that that is just this glimpse that people back then could have never got gotten. And I think that maybe God has, gives us a glimpse of this today in a way that the Bible continues to kind of reveal and show us truth. You see, when a man and a woman get together physically and they have a child... And there's conception, there literally is one cell from dad and one cell from mom, each carrying half of the parent's DNA. And then when that happens, those two cells literally fuse into one new cell and a completely new human genome that has never existed before and will never exist again is now a new individual created by God. It's phenomenal that even, you know, the same parents just, it's one cell and one cell. And depending on when that is and which cell that is, it's a completely different. It's not like we just make clones, you know, one after another. It's complete diversity. It's just, it's this amazing thing. But the two become one. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. A husband and a wife are one working unit in this world, one working unit, each, each with the desire to see the other one flourish and be fulfilled in, in, in life and in, in what all of this is, is, is coming about. They are no longer two. They are no longer independent and separate, but they are whole and brought into one. Now, if you're, if you're called to singleness, I, I want to tell you that, that the Bible upholds singleness in a way that that almost no other culture or people ever have. As a matter of fact, back then, the reason that Paul gives singleness such high regard is because it was given such low regard by everyone else. 
It was given such low regard that, that like if you were single, there was something wrong with you. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible tells us this, that there are some that are called literally to singleness in this world. And if you've given that calling on your life, then you should accept that and you should take that and that that's a good thing because you're able then to serve God without any distractions or anything. So being single is, is okay. And, and if you're single, but you know you've not been called to be single the whole of your life, like I knew that, the Bible's pretty clear about it. It says if you burn with desire. Well, when I was single, I was kind of burning with desire. And and so I knew that I wasn't called to be single forever. But at that time, I was called to be single. And I was called to be single according to God's plans, which looked like celibacy and waiting and praying and fasting and realizing that the second most important decision that you'll make in your life is who you spend the rest of your life with. See, and this is the reason that things like same-sex marriage are not equal to heterosexual marriage. Homosexual marriage or same-sex marriage is not equal in this regard. You see, when we begin to call it equal or the world begins to say it's equal, then the world begins to say that those positions, those roles of mother and father are dispensable and that they're interchangeable. But we're going to look at some stuff, and I'm going to tell you that the, 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 the facts don't line up with that. And again, we've got to be a people who are graceful, who are filled with grace, and, and who are loving and not just hateful and attacking the world out there. But we also have to recognize that, that it's not the same thing. That children truly in their lives, they need a mother and a father. And two fathers or two mothers cannot fulfill that role like a mother and a father can. They need that influence in their life. Both boys and girls need that. They need the influence of the other, of the other sex into their life. Because what are we doing? We're not just talking about this institution of marriage and it making us happy for today. We're talking about this being the cornerstone of things, the, all about the future of the world that we live in. So those things are just not the same. You see, it's an interesting thing that even with same-sex marriage, and you know what? I'm not going to say that they can't be loving to kids. We don't want to dehumanize people. Of course they can love kids. But they can't give kids what a mom and a dad can give kids. And that's just the truth. And it's just the way that it is. And it even tries to mimic the norm because if you'll notice, they're always still just talking about a couple. Why not three? Why not four? Why not 17? See, because we know that there's a norm and that there's something that is inside of us. And even in those relationships, same-sex relationships begin to try to mimic the norm. What you'll see very often is someone who is masculine and someone who is feminine in those roles because they're trying to mimic what God has really preordained as what is the norm and what should be. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We have to remember that marriage is holy, that it is a holy thing ordained by a holy God. And that we're not to tear that apart. Because if those two have become one, then to undo that means to rip them literally apart. 
And when you start ripping things apart, it gets really ugly. And I'm not throwing rocks. I've been divorced. I've been through a divorce. It's a hard thing. It's a terrible thing. It's an awful thing. And there's, there's carnage, and there's, there's, there's consequences in that. Let not man separate what has happened. There's, there is... Um, There is a provision that's given that way, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's one exception in this. It's sexual immorality. Jesus talked to his disciples here at the end of the chapter, and they went to the house, and they asked him about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Matthew gives us that little bit extra that says, except in the case of sexual immorality. And so now Jesus is actually siding more with the view of Shammai and saying, look, there, there is a clause because of this covenant, because of this relationship, because of the, the degree of, of, of pain that can be associated with, the, with that kind of um, betrayal, that there's a provision. It, it's not the command, and it's, it's not the ideal. The ideal is still restoration and, and redemption, because this is a redemptive God that we're talking about. But there is a clause that's given for divorce in that. But that's what we need to talk about is we need to talk about biblical marriage too, not just marriage. Because what we're talking about, we're not just talking about getting through life together and saying, well, we did it. We didn't get divorced. That's not a biblical marriage. Biblical marriage looks like two people becoming one in this life, desiring to see one another flourish, helping one another, doing life together, doing this whole thing, this walk together making the world a better place together, making one another better humans together. Not against each other. Not just putting up with one another. Not just kind of, you know, meeting each other in the hallway. Hey, what's up? We've got to talk about what biblical marriage looks like. And it looks like two people who are one, who are seeing one another flourish So Jesus says this thing, and he says, look, this is a pretty narrow thing, this idea of divorce. That is not the intention. We get it. There's hardness of heart, and I get it too. There's also the reality of this life, and divorce happens. And again, I don't want to hear anybody, I don't want to have anybody in here hear me bringing judgment or accusation or any of those kinds of things. There is grace, and there is redemption and God's the God of second and third and 27 chances. But we have to begin to look at this like God does. We can't look at it like the world does and says it's just this disposable thing. That we enter into it like, well, if it doesn't really work out, we'll just, we'll just get out. No, you've got to enter into this saying like, this is the second most important decision I make. The first one is my relationship to God. The second one is who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And that this is so binding and it's so real that there's not a way out. Divorce isn't an option. And when we look at it like that, maybe we start to back off of a little bit of, of, of you know, our, our perspective on some of that. Maybe if we left sex out of the picture like God tells us to, maybe we'd actually get to know this person before we marry them instead of getting all caught up in all of the excitement of a new relationship. 
Maybe if we left that off of the table instead of doing it like the world does it, we'd have a better idea if, if this is really somebody. Maybe I connect on some really deep levels like spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually. And maybe we begin to figure out maybe a little bit better. Maybe is this really somebody I want to spend the rest of my life with? Because if you leave sex out of the picture, you'll be forced to figure out who this really is. And you'll do a better job of making a decision. You see, the things that God gives us are not to hurt us. They're to preserve things. They're to help us. But see, we're we're, we're so locked into this that we know better than God that we're really struggling. Couples who undergo a divorce face a higher likelihood of depression, lower life satisfaction, changes in their financial status, and even a greater mortality risk than those who stay married. But it's not just divorcees that suffer. It's their children. What does the world say? The world says, oh, children are resilient. They'll be okay. They'll bounce back. They're, they're, they, they can handle it. No, they can't. It's crushing our kids. It's crushing our kids. I guarantee you my kids wear the, the scars of divorce. My older daughters do. And your marriage is the most important relationship in your kids' life. Because all of the security of their world is wrapped up in your marriage. They can't take care of themselves. They can't go out into the world and make a living. It's all wrapped up in your marriage, and there is no relationship that they want to see flourish more than your marriage because their security is there. And guess what, too? We're teaching our kids how to do marriage and relationship, so they want to watch you. They need to watch you. They need to see you do that in a good way. They need to see you have conflict and resolve it in a good way. But what have we done? The world is, is like centralizing the kids, right? It's all about the kids, and we chase the kids all over the world. And, and I, I do too. But you can't do that to the, at, the, at the expense of your marriage. Too many people are forgetting about their marriage, and they're making the kids the number one thing. Well, guess what? One of these days, your kids are going to go, and they're going to take their own, and they're gonna, you're going to be stuck with this person across the table that you may not know anymore. You want to make sure that you still know that person when the kids leave. And then the other thing is, again, we're modeling to our kids how to do this thing. If it's all about them, then we're just making selfish kids that have no clue of how to do relationship with somebody else. So the kids suffer. 50% of the kids in in the United States will witness the the dissolution of their parents' marriage. 25% of those will see it the second time go away. And about 10% will see a third divorce. Kids that, that, uh, whose parents divorce have a higher risk of asthma, headaches, speech impediments, cancer, strokes, and heart problems. They are 50% more likely to develop a serious physical ailment after the divorce. Psychological issues, teens and single parent and blended families are 300% more likely to need psychological help. There are higher rates of clinical depression, suicidal thoughts. Children of divorce are twice as likely to attempt suicide. Lower IQs and academic performance, they are two times as likely to drop out of school. Growing up with divorced parents means that they are four times more likely to experience problems with their friends and peers than children whose parents are still together. They are five times more likely to live in poverty. They're more likely to have attachment issues. 
substance abuse, sexual promiscuity, and obesity. 70% of the people that are incarcerated long-term grew up in broken homes. 75% of mass shooters came from broken homes, not only broken homes, but incredibly abusive homes. As a church, we have to gird up our marriages. And that's what we're going to do. That really is a focus that we're going to have as a church, is that we're going to dedicate ourselves to helping people with family, with marriage, with these issues, singleness, widows, orphans, single moms, singleness, all of this, a very broad picture. But we have to be a people who are getting back down to these basics, just back down to what it is intended to be and helping other people to do that as well. So as we kind of move into fall, you're going to see a big push with these kinds of things. We're going to be committed to putting on marriage seminars and evenings and, and helping one another and, and, and kind of going and parenting and finances, all of the things that go in with this so that we can be a people who can help other people in this area because the world is faltering here. Jesus then will finish this out. He says they were bringing children to him that, that he might touch them or bless them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Children are really important to Jesus, right? That means marriage is really important to him. He says, Bring them to me. And then he says not only that, but anybody who comes into the kingdom has to come the same way. And what do you do with God's word when we're challenged with this? Because it's challenging, I get it. We're challenged with this, but do you come like a child? Do you come open and receiving and if daddy said it, okay? Or are we not? Are we coming more like the adults, those who have let the world kind of come in on us and harden our hearts, change us, atrophy us spiritually? Are we coming like that? Or are we coming like children? Are we looking at him, recognizing that, God, if you've said it, then I'm going to believe it. And even if it's hard or it's difficult, even if I don't understand it, I'm going to trust that you're right and that you're good and that you know what you're talking about because you're the one who made it all. So, Lord, we just uh, we pray that you give us hearts like, a chil like children. And, Lord, where there is struggle, and there's lots of it, there's so much of it in here, Lord, and there's so much of it out there that we're asking, Lord, that, that you would help us, that you would fill us with grace, that you would um, focus us on your word and, and who you are, that, God, you would, you would teach us how to love the world in the way that you do, and that you would make us a church that's, that's about getting outside of these doors. Help us to, to remember that everything about your word and who you call us to be is it's about getting outside of these doors. Thank you, Lord, that you've, you've told us that we can be a new creation, that, that anybody out there can. And you came for the world, so help us, Lord, that we might come for them as well. Help us to be full of grace and love and, and mercy and kindness, but help us to be rooted and grounded in the truth of, of what you've told us. In this simple statement, but it's so broad and it's so, so wide in its, in its depth and its, its, its breadth, 
Lord, we just we want to go deeper and we want to know you more and, and we want to just get back down to what's real. Lord, in a world that's, that's throwing what's real and what's true away, Lord, help us to be a fortress of truth and help us to be a beacon of light for the world who's, who's trying to figure out what this is all about. Help us to know, Lord, and help us to go deeper in our own marriages. I'm, I'm praying over the marriages here. I'm praying over the ones that are and the ones that will be. And Lord, I'm asking that they would be strong, that they would be godly, that we would look to you, that we would truly be a demonstration of, of who you are right here on earth, and that we would begin to build something that's, that has some, some, some strength and some integrity. Help us, Lord, that we would truly be able to put on display marriage as you've intended it to be right here. And I pray for the other churches and the, and the marriages of Christians throughout our community, Again, those that are and those that will be. And I'm praying for the marriages that are struggling and those that are just in deep pain and they're, they're, they're wrestling through issues and it's real and it's hard. And, and, and I'm praying, Lord, that you would help them to, to, to just move into you and to, that you would give them the strength and the courage and, and, and the, the decisiveness that they'll need to, to make it through. I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to be enduring. I pray, Lord, just these things in the only name that can make this possible. We lift it before you, Jesus, and we're asking, Lord, that you will help us, and we pray it in your precious name. Amen.